open our hearts to receive his truth on this special missions day that you have. And I'm thankful that you have such a day and that missions is important to this church. Just a word about tonight. I've been asked to do a missionary biography. It'll be a sketch. It'll be of Anne Hazeltine Judson tonight, God willing. Uh, One of the um, finest missionary wives that you'll find in history. I say one because she's not the only fine one. Uh, Married to Adoniram Judson, who was among, if not some say the very first missionary sent from the shores of America uh, to new missionary work in another part of the world. But that's tonight. Um, Whatever time it is, you know I don't, but I'll be here, Lord willing, to do that. Psalm 67. This psalm, the heading says to the chief musician, on string instruments, a psalm, a song. God be merciful to us and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So the reading of God's word. This is a magnificent psalm. Psalm 67 is primarily and fundamentally a missionary psalm. It lies on the surface, doesn't it? Let all the peoples praise you, is the prayer of the psalmist. And the psalmist is asking for blessing. In the very first verse, he says, God, be merciful to us and bless us. He wants the blessing of the Lord. We all want the blessing of the Lord, do we not? And it's going to be our thought this morning to think about the asking and praying for God's blessing to rest upon us, the people of God. But interestingly enough, after the psalmist begins by saying, Lord, bless us, then he, he, he in verses six, two through six, he speaks about God's Uh, salvation amongst all the nations. So the question has to come to our minds is this, how is it that God blessing us is related to the salvation of the nations? Now, I know you have asked God to bless you, and there's a lot of ways that God may legitimately bless us. I have known people over the years who... um, In fact, back in the early 80s in the Quad Cities of Illinois and Iowa, where I ministered, um, there was the closure of the farm oil plant. And then the Rock Island Railroad went defunct after the union uh, struck. And unemployment rose to 22%. And there were a lot of men in the church that I pastored who were asking for the Lord's blessing to rest upon them that they could find work. There was a period of time where we thought maybe the Quad Cities was going to be a ghost town. Now, it didn't turn out that way, of course, uh, but it was dismal for a while. 
And we, I remember meeting with a group of men on a weekly basis, men who are without work, and we'd study the scriptures together, we'd pray together, and we'd, we, we, we tried to sympathize with these men in seeking the blessing of the Lord. Now, it's a legitimate thing to ask God's blessing for work when you don't have work, isn't it? Or when you don't have a home, or when there's a lack of food on the table. That's a legitimate blessing for which we may ask. Those are legitimate blessings. And there's a lot of things for which we ask God's blessing that are very, very legitimate. But in this particular psalm, the psalmist is asking for God's blessing, not for any material prosperity, but the blessing for which he is asking is a blessing that God would come and save the nations. And really in this psalm, he's asking for two blessings— There is a primary blessing and there is a secondary blessing. And both of these blessings are related to the great gospel enterprise of reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's these two blessings that I want to direct your attention to this morning. Now we're going to look at the secondary blessing first. And we'll look at the first blessing The primary blessing, last. I'm following the example of our Lord Jesus who saved the best wine for last. So we'll look at the secondary blessing first of all and uh, see what that is and then to this primary blessing. What is the primary or the secondary blessing for which the psalmist desires for the blessing of God to rest upon his church? Well, it is simply put the salvation of the nations. We see it clearly through this psalm. You couldn't miss it. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. Verse 3, let the peoples praise you. Verse 4, oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you. And verse 5b, let the peoples praise you. We can't miss it. The blessing for which he seeks is for the people of the earth to give praise to God. And then finally in verse 7, God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So what the psalmist sees is this, the great, the great blessing for which he seeks is that there would be people all over the earth who would praise God. And this is an old covenant writer who understood that Salvation wasn't just for one nation, but it was for all the peoples of the earth. And he longed to see all the peoples of the earth worshiping and praising God. That's what we want as well. Now, when we think about that, we've got to stop and think for just a moment. You know, the conversion of the nations is generally almost universally accompanied with sufferings, persecutions, trials, and difficulties. So when the psalmist says, Lord, bless us, that the nations will worship you, as we think about the entirety of Scripture, we come to realize that this is really a prayer that God would bring suffering to the gospel laborers who open up new territory for Jesus Christ. 
You see, the Lord promised this. He told his disciples to preach the gospel to every creature. He told them, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And this is a theme that we find repeated in the New Testament. Listen to just a few phrases from these passages of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12. In the midst of that passage, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or listen to the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5. He said, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Whenever I read that verse, I think of a dear lady who was converted early in my ministry in East Moline. Her family members were not converted. And after she had professed faith and been baptized, I remember her coming to me one time and saying, Pastor, she says, I just don't understand. She says, here I am attempting to walk with the Lord. And there's all these troubles. And then my family is against me. Well, I could say to her, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner against you evil, evil uh, for my sake. But great is your reward in heaven. We must always be future looking. But you see, this is what accompanies the spread of the gospel. Or listen to our Lord Jesus in Matthew fifteen twenty: If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Or the Apostle Paul in Acts 14, 22, he said, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And there are many other verses such as this, where the gospel is preached. What happens is those who preach it receive trial, persecutions, and difficulties. That's what happens when we ask for the blessing of the Lord to rest upon us. If you've read much missionary biography, you know the reality of that. Think of William Carey, the father of modern missions, sent out by the Northampton Association out of England, and he went out with a man by the name of John Thomas. They went over to India. John Thomas painted this glowing picture of India and how it was that they would be able to take the gospel there. Well, they reached, um, they reached India, and it wasn't glowing at all. And in fact, there were so many problems and difficulties that John Thomas took all of William Carey's money, set himself up like a prince, and was carried through the city on one of these, um, well, it wasn't a taxi, but you know what I mean, the, the four poles with a little thing, and, and made, made himself like a king, And Carey had no money. He had to leave town. He had to go out and live in the jungle, a tiger-infested jungle. He had to, with his own hands, uh, cut uh, swath uh, in the jungle. Fortunately, there was a place where they could, uh, a man who took them in, they could live. And subsistence farming. And his wife was railing at him. And his wife's sister was railing at him as well. And he worked that way during the day, and at night he studied the language. But he persevered. And then, 
John Thomas said, I'm sorry. And you know what William Carey did? He went back and worked with him. And that was just really the beginning of his troubles. After the mission was established, after he had translated much, all his translations were burned in a fire. And he had to start over on everything. But he kept right at it. The point I'm making is this. There was a prayer by that small association of churches in Northampton that the gospel would reach India. They sent a man out to reach India. And they sent him out to a place of suffering, trial, and untold persecution. But God sustained him over the long haul. And so when you and I pray, as we must pray, that the gospel will reach the nations, we must understand that we are praying that God would send men and women who are willing to suffer for his name. The first missionary from the States, I've mentioned, Adoniram Judson, his wife, Anne, of whom we will speak tonight, God willing. They went to, they left the shores of the United States. They went over to India, met William Carey. And then the East India Company forced them to leave Serampur. They ended up on a little island called Madras. And then they were heading to Burma, and Anne lost by miscarriage their first child. And that was just the beginning of sorrows, which we'll detail more this evening. And Adoniram experienced trials and difficulties and imprisonment, losing eventually his first wife, losing his second wife as well. But yet he remained faithful to the Lord. But the gospel came to Burma. And people were converted. Churches were started. And this was a result of prayers that were offered. That God would bless us and cause the gospel, cause people to praise him all over the world. And are those days over? You know, there are still many places in the world that have not been reached with the gospel. Your pastor referred to those, the, the fact that there are places where the gospel has not yet penetrated. Northern India is one of those places. <clears throat> it's one of the least evangelized places in India. Southern India has been largely evangelized. Not that there aren't unreached areas there, but north and northwest India is largely uh, untouched by the gospel. Not entirely untouched, but almost untouched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, in the northern India Ganges plains, there are millions of Hindi-speaking speak people uh, in, in, in five different states. I'll not name them because I can't pronounce them correctly. But these states have a population of 360 million people. Now, if I remember correctly, that's more people than live in the United States of America. 360 million people just in those five states in northern India. There are professing 650,000 Christians. But it is stated that only about 120,000 of them would be committed believers to Jesus Christ. 
360 million, 120,000. There are other areas of northern India, the forward caste, where there are 91 million and only 5,000 Christians. And there are more places like that across northern India. The gospel needs to go to northern India. It is largely unreached. And when we pray, as we, as we will and, and continue to pray, Lord, cause your face to shine upon us, that peoples may praise you, that peoples in North India may praise you, that people amongst the forward castes may praise you, which means that God will send laborers there to reach those people, and we may be assured that what we are praying is that God will send sturdy men and sturdy women who are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ to penetrate those areas with the gospel, because that is how the gospel goes forth. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who brought us salvation via the cross. The glory is yet to come. But it is the cross of Jesus Christ which has secured our salvation. Now I say to you, that's the blessing for which we seek. But as we seek that blessing, that peoples would praise God, let us never forget this sobering thought that we are asking God to send forth people who will be willing to suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. Well, that's the secondary blessing. I want to move on and have us look together at the primary blessing for which the psalmist prays. And that blessing is found throughout the psalm, just like the secondary blessing. Why is it we want the Lord to bless us and cause his face to shine upon us? Well, let me read again some of these verses with just a little different emphasis. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. And verse 4, O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations on earth. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Verse 7, all the ends of the earth shall fear him. You see, the primary blessing is the glory of God. The primary blessing is that our God be worshipped. The reason we want the peoples to, to be saved is that they will glorify God, that they will worship the same God that has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. That is the prayer of the psalmist. He wants all men to give glory to God, not just a few in this nation or that nation, but rather all to give glory to God. The motivation for missions must always be the glory of God. Always the glory of God. Um, Now, how is it that God is glorified? Well, God is glorified when he is worshipped. When he is worshipped as the creator of the heavens and the earth, God is glorified. 
Isaiah chapter 40 says, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, who calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. This is the question from the Lord. Who who are you going to liken me to? You look at the heavens. There's no one like I am. I mean, I can name all these stars. You know, on a clear night, I understand that the, naked, the human eye can see about 3,000 stars. I'll take their word for it. I get this from astronomy for beginners, and that's as far as I go in astronomy. 3,000, and I've never tried to count 3,000 stars. If you live in the city, you can't see that many because of the city lights <clears throat> cover some of the stars, of course. Now, that's, that's wonderful, but you, there are an estimated 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and there are 1 million such galaxies in the range of our most powerful telescopes. And, of course, when the scientists look through the most powerful telescopes, when they see these 1 billion stars in our galaxy alone, they fall down on their face and they say, what a great God put all this together. Well, of course, you know they don't, do they? They look at it and they say, man, there's a big bang, and it's bigger than they can ever imagine. Bigger than they can ever imagine. Why don't they see the glory of God in creation? When I was a teenager, our family took a vacation, and we traveled from Iowa, across Illinois, up into Michigan, Indiana, Michigan, and my father was determined he wanted to take the Milwaukee uh, Clipper from Muskegon, Michigan, across Lake Michigan over to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we did. And uh, we drove the car onto the Clipper. And it was late in the afternoon. <clears throat> and we were in the middle of Lake Michigan, and darkness came. And, and when that darkness came, we were in the middle of, middle of the lake away from all city lights of either Milwaukee, Chicago, or Muskegon, or, 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 or any other city, and beholding the beauty, the beauty of the creation. And my father said to me, he says, Gordon, I just don't understand. How is it that someone could look at this and not believe in God? As we stood on the deck of the clipper, How is that? Well, now I understand. The reason that men can't see the glory of God in creation is because they've never seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only when men see the glory of God in Christ, only when they come to understand that there is a Redeemer who can take away their sin. Only when they come to understand that they are guilty and vile and deserving of the wrath of God because of their sin and see the provision that there is in Jesus Christ. Only when they come by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit to have a heart that's changed and a heart that has been that the Holy Spirit has revealed to them Christ Jesus crucified for sinners. Only then... When they bow the knee to Jesus, will they be able to open their eyes from having faith in Christ and say, Oh, 
I see the glory of God in creation because they have first seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if there's someone here this morning who's wrestling with the idea of evolution, your problem isn't evolution. Your problem is that you've not seen Jesus who made all this. And you've not, therefore, come to be able to worship the true and the living God without seeing Jesus. And that's why we preach the gospel. That's why you see the psalmist once uh, sees as the primary blessing here, that, that men would bring glory to our great and glorious God. Paul said... When he came to, the, to Corinth, he said, I, I desired, I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why, Paul? Why didn't you talk about the philosophy of Corinth? Why didn't you point out the, the, the paucity of their ideas? Why didn't you destroy their philosophical arguments? Because he knew that if they came to know Christ, those arguments would crumble before them. It is Christ and Christ alone who delivers men's minds from the false teachings of the world in which you and I live. Why did you preach Jesus Christ, Paul? Well, he tells us in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, He said, so that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. It is for the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. And why did Jesus say we should do good works? He said, let let, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our desire is to see God glorified. That is the greatest blessing for which the church prays. The greatest blessing is that God will be glorified. And that's the reason we preach the gospel. That's why we do missions. That's why we want our churches full. Not just so that we can have a larger church than someone else. We want them full because there will be more men worshiping and praising the true and the living God. The primary purpose of missions is not that men be saved. It's that God be worshipped. And we want them saved so they will worship. In John Piper's fine book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he sums it up this way. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Every missionary in the new heavens and the new earth will be unemployed at least in the work that he did here on earth. Oh, that's what we want. You know, years ago, we had a Christian school in our church, and 
We had a missionary come and speak at our um, at our church, and then uh, the man I was the man who really was instrumental in starting the Christian school wanted to, wanted to know if the missionary could stay over so that he could speak to the students. I said, "Sure." The man's name was Max Bell's. Um, you may have heard of his son, Joel Bells, who's the founder and publisher of World Magazine. So my dear friend Max um, had the fellow come down, and Max was one of the most exuberant Christian men that I've ever known. And the fellow was telling about how it was that he was taking the gospel to Africa and how that all the problems and difficulties they had just getting from one place to another as they took the gospel... And uh, so Max asked him this penetrating question. He says, what keeps you going? He says, when you come to a, um, a, a, a river and your four-wheeler won't make it through and you have to uh, take the cable and ford the river and latch it onto a tree across and pull yourself through and you get stuck and, and then you get to a village and the villagers don't even necessarily want to hear what you've got to say. He says, what is it that keeps you going? Fortunately, the missionary gave the right answer. <clears throat> and basically what Max was saying is, it, is it because you, you, you see the needs of these people? And the missionary said, well, yeah, we see their need. But he says there's something greater than that. It's not the need of the people that keeps us going. It is the fact that this is the command of our Lord Jesus. And out of love for him, we keep doing it. It is for the glory of God, in other words. And that must be the motivation, the reason that we keep doing things like this. So this is the blessing for which the church seeks. Secondary blessing, that all the peoples would praise God. And that's going to happen as missionaries are sent forth. And as they are sent forth, they are going to suffer. We're asking, Lord, please send forth sufferers so that people can praise you. And the primary blessing, we're asking God to bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that he will be glorified, that he will be worshipped, that his name will be exalted above every name, that people will see Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Now, as we think about this, what is it that should be our response? Well, I have four simple applications. First, this. First and foremost, we must pray, because this psalm is a prayer. God, be merciful to us and bless us. Let the nations praise you. We pray for the blessing of the Lord. And dear friends, we can never overemphasize this too much. We must pray. We must seek God's face for the progress of the gospel. <clears throat> If we fail to pray, we're assuming that men can do it on their own, but they can't. The Lord must sustain them. The Lord must protect them. The Lord must help them. The Lord must give them all the strength and grace that they have for this. And so the church must pray that all the ends of the earth will come to fear God. And we can be specific in our prayers for specific missionaries of whom we are aware those that we know, that God will help them in the proclamation of the gospel. Um, I think of our, our dear friend David Vaughan over in France, who has suffered greatly with severe back pain. 
debilitating. And so he sought the help of a physical therapist in his city. And the physical therapist has helped him immensely. But he has helped the physical therapist more than the therapist helped him. The physical therapist was into Eastern religion, Buddhism, and every other conceivable Eastern mystic type thing that you can think of. And our missionary friend David Vaughn spoke to him of Christ and entered into Bible study with him. And the Lord has now saved this man. He's removed the Buddhas out of his office and replaced it with a Bible. And he now is worshiping Christ and giving glory to God. Now, I felt so bad for David Vaughn because of the severe back problems he had. But God used that very suffering to bring one of his own to be a worshiper of the true and the living God. We prayed that God would give relief from the pain. My desire was that he'd be healed instantly. God's desire was that he suffer to point someone to Christ. A second application. Remember that the major motive for missions is the glory of God. We must never forget this. Why do we want our churches to grow? Why do we want to see missions progress in other places of the world? It is so that there will be more praise, that God will be glorified. It is so that men will worship God. Uh, Piper, in his book, makes this statement as well. He says, missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. (laughs) And that's very true. The missionaries who go forth must rejoice in the Lord. If they learn to rejoice in the Lord, then the sufferings and the difficulties and the persecutions, as painful as they are and as debilitating as they may be, but yet they're able to say, I rejoice in the Lord. And so their major motive is the glory of the Lord, not just a relief of their suffering. And we must think that way, that way as well as the church of Jesus Christ. And then a third application. <clears throat> this psalm teaches us that the entire church needs to be involved in the great gospel enterprise of missions. Did you notice the language and the plural that's used here? God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. This is not just a psalm for the missionaries. It's not just a psalm for the leadership in the church. It's a psalm for the whole church. God be merciful to us and bless us. How many people received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? 120. You mean it wasn't just 12? No, it was 120. Now, it's true only one got up and preached to thousands. But the whole 120 were speaking the praises of God. All 120 were giving praise and glory to God. And God has different gifts in different ways that he blesses his people with gifts of the Spirit of God. But all are involved 
Not everyone goes to a foreign mission to preach the gospel. No. Some do. Some are sent there. Not everyone preaches from a pulpit. No, not all do that. But there's every single one of us who has received the Spirit of God, every single one of us who can give praise to God, every single one of us needs to have the name of Jesus on our lips, giving thanks and praise to him, and looking for ways that we can speak of Christ to our neighbors, fellow workmen, and others. This is, a, this is the entire church is involved in missions. Lord, bless us. And when you pray this prayer, dear friend, oh Lord, cause your face to shine upon us. Say, that includes me. That includes me. The housewife who's changing diapers and washing dishes. That I too may give glory to your name. And then a final application, which is actually four questions. But I'll be brief. First question is this. Are you so wrapped up in the world that you've forgotten the glory of God and the gospel and the worldwide proclamation of the gospel? You know, it's easy for us to get wrapped up in life. And God has, God has blessed us in material ways in our country, hasn't he? But oh, let us never get so wrapped up that we forget that the main purpose of our existence is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And glorifying God is to pray that his face would shine upon us, that his way, his way, may be known on the earth. So we must ask ourselves that question. Am I wrapped up in this world too much? A second question. Has life become too comfortable? I ask this because You know, it's a, um, what if God were to call one of your children to northern India? And you know very good and well that if they go, they're going to suffer. Would you be willing to give them up? Um, We we must not be so comfortable that we forget that there's a greater purpose in life than comfort. A third question. Have you ever failed to look on the multitudes as Jesus Christ did? You know, the world is coming to our doorstep here in the United States. And then there are so many needy people here in the United States. You remember Jesus looked on the multitudes and he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. He said, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into his harvest field. He saw them, if you please, as victims. They were the victims of the legalistic teaching of the Pharisees. Of the false teaching of the Sadducees. Of an example of religious people who made religion the means by which people would acknowledge how wonderful they were. Now, we don't have that particular problem here in the States. There's not very many people who are 
putting themselves forward as, as religious and trying to get people to follow them. We have exactly the opposite, don't we? But nonetheless, we have a lot of false teaching and a lot of false thinking and a lot of people who have bought into it and a lot of people who have become dependent. And we may think, and we're probably thinking right, unnecessarily dependent upon handouts. And then we can begin to look at people like this and say they ought to know better. Oh, my dear friend, Jesus looked at people like this and said, they're sheep without a shepherd. They need true shepherds to point them to Christ. And thank God that that's happening here and there. May it happen more and more. But we must, we must look at the multitudes as Jesus did, not condemning them, but praying for them and praying that God would be pleased to reach them by his gospel. And then one final question, which I already know the answer to, is missions being emphasized in your church? Thank God it is. May it always be for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm. It is our prayer that you be pleased to bless us and cause your face to shine upon us, that your way may be known upon the earth, that your glory may be seen and known in this wicked world in which we live, that you would be worshipped, and that multitudes would come to bow before Christ and worship his great and holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.